0: Thanks for tuning in today. I'm really excited about today's guest. I have Jacqueline Batalora on. Dr. Batalora is a keynote speaker, author, trainer, and consultant in workplace and educational inclusion. Her keynotes about the legal invention of the human category white people turn contemporary conceptions of race upside down and reorient thinking about race and human divisions. She is the author of Birth of a White Nation, The Invention of White People and Its Relevance Today, and numerous articles. She is an attorney and professor of sociology at St. Xavier University, Chicago, and a former Chicago police officer. Battalora is an editor for the Journal of Understanding and Dismantling Privilege, and on today's show we're going to be talking about her book and the invention of whiteness. You're listening to Speaking of Racism, the podcast dedicated to frank, honest, and respectful discussions about race and racism in the U.S. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Pull up a chair and let's talk. Special thanks to Grapes for the music. The song is I Don't Know, featuring Jay Lang.
1: Welcome to the show, Dr. Batalora. Thank you very much. It's really an honor to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. So today we're going to learn about the creation of the white race and the history behind why it was created and the relevance that this understanding plays in dismantling white supremacy and combating racism today. So for a lot of people, they might not be very aware of history. I I fancied myself a bit of a history buff, and I was absolutely 100% ignorant of everything that is in your book. And this book has been such an awesome read. Jen, um,
1: you're you're not the only one who was uninformed of this history, and and I think that at the onset flags a huge problem for us in U.S. culture and society. Yes, um, and that is the history that we're provided in our K through 12 education.
0: Yes. Amazingly. And that's part of the reason I actually homeschool my kids. And in homeschooling them, we have a heavy, heavy focus on history. And I'm trying to teach them decolonized history. And what I realize as I'm doing this is I'm learning right alongside of them. But I'm also learning that it's still very difficult to get a hold of the resources to teach this. Absolutely.
1: You know what? Um, And I'll take this opportunity, if you don't mind, to plug for a new book I have co-authored with Rachel Webster. And it's written for nine to 14 year olds. Yes. And it tells the, the true story of a British indentured servant who uh. was as a criminal punishment was sent to the colony of Maryland, where she lived through this moment where white people were imposed as a matter of law for the very first time. And we know about her because she is the grandmother of Benjamin Banneker. Um, so anyway, it, it's a wonderful, true story That allows for a much more honest portrayal of colonial North American history, um, the kidnapping and enslavement of people from Africa, and the Native Americans who had been here more than 14,000 years (laughs) before the British arrived. So um, it's coming, hopefully, coming soon. I'll send people to my website um, to find that eventually.
0: Yeah, excellent. What is your website? Where can we go? jbadalora.com Okay, excellent. And we'll include a link to that. Do you have a working title or do you have a title yet?
1: Yeah, I think it will be called Molly from Indentured Servant to Landowner in Colonial North America. A little laborious, but we wanted teachers to know the content. (laughs)
0: <laughs> right, exactly. You have to name it properly or people don't know. And that is exciting to me because my kids are both nine. So it will be a perfect, right. perfect time to do that. So let's talk about history a bit here. I want to get started just going back to the beginning in a sense. And that beginning is the creation of white as a race and why it's important to actually look at this early colonial history and early colonial life. The thing that and I'll share my ignorance in this process because might, you know, make other people feel uh, like they have a kindred spirit here. But even though I was raised partly to identify with my indigenous roots, I had a white passing life and a white experience in in traditional schools and so on and so forth. And so despite my disdain for the pilgrim stories and all of these different things, it was still hammered into me that essentially the pilgrims came over on their boats and they landed and they peacefully coexisted with, you know know, Native Americans, and and sometimes they had some battles. But by and large, everything was just copacetic. Then we look at the history of slavery. And on some level, I sort of thought that all people who were brought here at one point in my life, I thought that they were brought here as slaves. I wasn't aware of the prevalence of free people of African descent. So prior to some of these laws, prior to chattel slavery, we had something going on in early colonial life that was different from what I understood. So can you tell us a little about that?
1: Sure. Yeah. Here's what's really important to understand. Before we talk about the assertion of a group of people called white people, what's really critical to the story is that we understand the social context within the colonies before that happened. And because because that part of the story is often what is absolutely most surprising to people. And it was for me when I dug into this history. So here's an important piece of information. When I wrote the book, Birth of a White Nation, there was still a debate going on in academia that had been going on for decades about whether the first group of people of African descent that were brought to the colony of Virginia were enslaved or free. It was a huge debate. It raged for decades and decades. And subsequent to publishing the book, the ship manifest was uncovered in Port And so the debate's now been resolved. The ship captain claimed those men as enslaved people from Africa. So all of the people of African descent that we know of were in fact forced into slavery upon arriving on these shores. But Mm -hmm. what we also know, and this, if anybody wants to dig into the historical record, you want to go into the writings of, he's now a a famous historian called Edmund Morgan. And his work reveals, especially of Virginia, reveals to us that having a free person of African descent was not at all uncommon during this time period. So the question becomes, well, if they came enslaved, but there were free people, how did that happen? And here's what the historical record reveals. What we know is that many of the first people of African descent who were brought to the North American colonies came from other British colonies like Barbados. So they Mm. already spoke English, were acclimated to the weather, were accustomed to very very difficult farming work. There they were involved in sugarcane farming, and then of course in the southern North American colonies, um, tobacco farming. Mm-hmm. So they had really, really valuable skills. Compare that to poor British people taken off the streets of London and shipped over here, right? Think about right. what sorts of skills they'd have, whether they're, they would be physically acclimated to the environment. Um, so you can see that that those first groups of people of African descent could be quite valuable to the um, plantation owners. And they were. So what they were able to do is some were able to have side jobs. So they'd work all day on the plantation, and then they'd have side jobs through which they would earn money. And mm-hmm. that enabled them to purchase their own freedom, that of family members and loved ones. Interesting. So that was the leading way in which um, enslaved persons of African descent were able to realize freedom. The second way revealed in the historical record is through wills and trusts of plantation owners. So sometimes a plantation owner, in their will or trust, would free certain enslaved persons of African descent. Okay. So that's how we know that free people of African descent were not uncommon. But let, let me say something quick about the structure of gender relations because it's also kind of important for us to remember at this time. And it also helps sort of shed some light on intersectionality. And that is, um, during this time period, uh, the law of coverture is what prevailed and established relations between men and women. And the law of coverture is described by the famous lawyer in England, Barrister Blackstone, in this way. He says, in marriage, the two are made one, and the one is the man. And quite Mm. literally, that was the case as a matter of law. So as soon as a woman married, her husband held all of the legal standing recognized in a court of law. As a practical sense, this meant that she couldn't enter into a contract. She had right. no right to her own wages. She couldn't create a will or a trust. She had no legal recognition in a court of law without a man, none. Hmm. And um, furthermore, if she were sexually assaulted, it was her husband who had the claim, not her. So you get a wow. sense of how, how just all-encompassing the law of coverture um, was. So right. that established gender relations. And so that's important to understand because all be talking about free men rather Mm -hmm. than free women. Um, And that's the
0: reason why, (laughs) because women are,
1: are very much structured in this position below men
0: at this point in history, we're able to see that there were marriages between free men of African descent, for example, and British women or other European women, correct?
1: That's exactly right. In fact,
0: it is in
1: such a a law that contested those marriages where we see the first assertion of a group of humanity called white people. I want to make sure we've really painted this picture of colonial society before white people were invented, because otherwise otherwise it does it doesn't mean that much because yeah. we're all like well yeah that's just how it is because yeah. really life after the assertion of white people is the life we know. Right. It's the organization that we're that we're still living very much within. So, so before the 1680s, there were free people of African descent, mm-hmm. and free men of African descent had the same rights and privileges as a free British man. Exactly the same rights. And furthermore, I neglected to note that people of African descent who worked on the same plantation as British workers, and let's be clear. The vast majority of the workers on plantations were British, poor British men. So people of African descent and British descent worked together. They were treated the same on the same plantation. They ate together. They slept together. They worked together. So there was no no hierarchy dependent upon one's nation of origin. That simply did not exist. So that's important to note. Then when you look at life for free people, um, free British men and free African men, again, had the same rights and privileges as a matter of law. So that meant free men of African descent could vote, and they did. They could own enslaved African people, and some did. Mm -hmm. They could own European or British indentured servants, and they did. They could marry a person of the opposite sex regardless of her nation of origin, and they did with abandon. And they could also, by the way, run for public office, but I can't find a single record in the historical material of anyone who chose to do so. Oh, but you get a okay. sense of. I think now we've painted enough of a picture of of this context in colonial society that existed. Now, in one county in Virginia, fifty percent of the free men of African descent were married to British women. Wow! And we know that among the masses, among let's just use today's parlance, the ninety nine percent were the laborers, the workers, mm-hmm. um, and again, the vast majority of that group were poor British men, and then the landowners, will just refer to them as the 1%. Okay. So among the 99%, there is not one stitch, not one piece of even anecdotal historical evidence that indicates those marriages between um, persons of African descent and persons of British descent or, or other Europeans, that those were viewed in a negative light. Nothing. We, I can't find anything. <laughs> and here's the kinds of things we would look for. We have examples of people who were small business owners, and you would expect um, if the community at large were offended by the marriage, that there would at least be a temporary dip in their income stream. Mm -hmm. Again, we don't see that, not one time. Wow. Another thing we, we might expect if these marriages were viewed in a negative light is that at the time, not unlike today, actually, women far outlived men. And so it was not uncommon for women to marry multiple times. It should also okay. be noted that there were roughly 8 to 12 men for every woman. So okay. women were a commodity. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm um, trying to shed light on the fact that that there is really no evidence in the historical record that among the masses, among the 99%, that these marriages were viewed negatively. N- nothing. Can't find That's anything. So, so women married multiple times. It, that was not uncommon. And and again, if the community viewed these marriages in a negative light, we might expect that it was more difficult for a British woman who had previously been married to an African man um to maybe face some difficulty marrying a British man subsequent to that. And again, you, you just don't see that in the historical record. So there was resistance to the marriages, but it did not come from among the masses. It came from the ruling elite, specifically in 1664 by the Maryland lawmakers. And what they did, Mm -hmm. and this is the really important part. So pay attention to the language of the law. In Maryland, they passed a law in 1664 that punished British and other freeborn women who married enslaved Negro men. And they imposed extremely harsh punishment upon these women. The women were enslaved for the duration of their husband's lives, and any children they might have are enslaved into their 20s. So really serious consequences.
0: And Yeah, when I was reading that in the book, I was really, it just, it really hit me hard because, too, it puts them in a position where it almost allows people to take advantage of that and maybe even encourage that for the purpose of trafficking and slavery, right?
1: Absolutely. Well, that's what's so interesting, right, is in the law of 1664, the lawmakers explain Explained the purpose for the law, which they claimed was to in um uh, to restrict and, and block these quote shameful matches, unquote. Mm-hmm. They went on to say that these British women are clearly forgetful of their of their place, and they state, quote, British are deserving of rights and privileges from which others can be denied, end quote. And so In in explaining the purpose of the law, they clearly intended to prohibit and restrict the marriages, but quite the opposite occurred, as you suggest in your comment. In fact, plantation owners had nothing but incentive for these marriages to take place, because as soon as she says, I do that property value has just gone up. Wow! The landowners now have property in the British indentured servant or European indentured servant who married an enslaved man of African descent on the plantation, and then any children that they have increase the value further. So it's not until... 1681, that Uh lawmakers in Maryland correct for this problem with the law. This time they get it right, but pay attention to the language of the law. Uh In the law of 1681, the amendment to the law of 1664, the lawmakers punish, quote, British and other white women who marry enslaved Negro men. And this time they got it right because they impose a punishment on anyone found to have encouraged the marriage on the person who performed the marriage as well. So that time it had you know, the expressed desired effect, which was to limit and restrict those marriages. But you notice the language in the law. Something Mm -hmm. happened between 1664 and 1681 that caused an entirely new group of humanity that appears nowhere else in colonial law prior to this moment. And that is a reference to a group of people called white people.
0: Right. Right. And that's where we see it begin, 1681.
1: 1681 is the first reference in law. And so mm-hmm. the question, of course, becomes, well, what can, it, what can help us understand that? Obviously, lawmakers don't just go invent groups of people unless it's to serve a purpose. And the answer to the question is Bacon's Rebellion. And it raged in neighboring Virginia for well over a year. It was huge. Yes. Um, and we know a lot about how the ruling elite responded to and experienced this rebellion, whether they were in Virginia or other colonies in North America. So what's obvious from this rebellion, which lasted well over a year and ultimately wasn't put down until the British sent troops in, Mm -hmm. what was obvious about it is that it terrified the ruling elite in North America. The British ruling elite were really troubled by this, and you can imagine, right? If you are part of the one percent mm-hmm. and facing a disgruntled ninety-nine percent, that would be pretty threatening, I imagine. And this rebellion again was really significant and and had an incredible impact um, on the ruling. Yeah, it elite. seems.
0: It seems as though Bacon's Rebellion was really the turning point in a sense that moved all law in a radical way forward to separate and divide. Can you tell us what, tell us about Bacon's Rebellion? I know it's really in depth and detailed, but just as a general discussion, what was Bacon's Rebellion?
1: Sure. Well, perhaps it's best to start with what gave rise to the rebellion. And so here's just a a little sketch of that. So Mm -hmm. prior to Bacon's rebellion, there had been a population boom in England. And so there was always this ready supply of um, indentured workers to come and fill the labor supply needed on the plantation. So there was just this ready supply of poor British people who were pulled out of workhouses in England The prisons were emptied and folks were sent to work as indentured servants. So that ready supply of labor died out. And so plantation owners were panicked about how they were going to replenish their labor supply. So what they began to do was impose, um, impose really harsh punishments on indentured servants for relatively minor infractions. And so that became a mechanism for keeping workers longer. So you can imagine that laborers were, were frustrated, um, Furthermore, the king had given most of the good land to his friends. So even if you were lucky enough to complete your term of indenture and save some money to purchase land, there there wasn't a whole lot around. Right. And to make things even worse, the king increased taxes and the price of tobacco had dropped. So it was in many ways the perfect storm for a rebellion. So what was happening was that the masses were finding it harder and harder to finish one's term of indenture within the original agreed upon. upon time to survive or have any opportunities for success if they completed their term of indenture. And then even those who were small farmers were finding it increasingly difficult to compete with the large plantation owners who were increasing the number of workers who they didn't have to pay at all. So this is right at that historical moment where there's a shift from British indentured workers being the masses of laborers Mm -hmm. to kidnapped people from Africa. So this represents that shift um, in time.
0: All right. So we've set the stage then prior to Bacon's Rebellion. So what happens during Bacon's Rebellion?
1: Sure. Well, what gave rise to Bacon's Rebellion, um, all of those factors really made it this perfect storm nathaniel bacon led the rebellion and he was furious with the the lawmakers in virginia because they wouldn't respond violently to the neighboring tribes who nathaniel bacon believed had murdered some of his neighbors hmm. so the first phase of bacon's rebellion focused on a, a slaughter of native of native american peoples who were on the outskirts of the colony of Virginia. So that was mm-hmm. the first phase of Bacon's Rebellion. The second phase focused on the ruling elite. And again, this rebellion was huge and lasted a very long time and ultimately wasn't put down um, until after England sent in troops.
0: Right. Theodore yeah,
1: but- Allen is a historian whose work mm-hmm. is really important here because what, what he does is he digs into these communications going back and forth between lawmakers in Virginia and other North American colonies and the Legal Oversight Authority over in London that had responsibility for all of the laws within the British colonies. And so in these communications, we learn that the lawmakers in Virginia tell the folks in London, don't worry, we have this under control. Basically, we're going to pursue a divide and conquer
0: strategy. Really?
1: Yes. And so it is interesting. Right. So following that series of communications, we see the Mm -hmm. assertion of a group of humanity now called white people in law. And some of the first laws included things like British and other white men and women actually in Virginia was their law in 1691. And it it prohibited white men and women from Mm -hmm. marrying members of native tribes or people of African descent. Right. Another law prohibited free blacks from being in a possession of a weapon or powder. Mm -hmm. Another law prohibited Blacks from testifying against a white person. So there were many, many more laws, and actually, laws of that like continued to get passed into the next quarter of the next century. But let's just, if we just look at the three I mentioned, mm-hmm. I mean, it must have been extraordinary. And, and I'll put myself in the shoes of a a British indentured servant. So my whole life, I've known myself as British, and all of a sudden. I'm being told, and of course, communications didn't happen quickly like today, right. and we know from the the record that these bundle of laws that were passed were required by law to be read two times every year at the courthouse steps and at church on Sunday. Yes, so, I read that. Yeah, so there was a an, an effort underway to make sure this new social arrangement was, was known to everyone.
0: Yeah, that was amazing. I actually lived in China, and so I learned quite a bit about the way the communists communicated on Mm -hmm. large scale. And many times when I get into conversations with people who don't understand this history that we're talking about right now, and they seem frustrated with this notion that there was this large-scale attempt to create the white race and and what that looked like, it's as if they think everybody was so removed and not capable of talking and interacting. So when I read that twice a year, these were read at these two points. I found that eerily similar to what the communists did. Right. Yeah.
1: Right. You don't have internet and social media and other means to communicate in mass. So you use these cultural sites where large numbers gather. Right. So if you look at just those few laws where Mm This reference to a group of people called white people first appears. They make it absolutely clear that white people, as invented in law, were presumed superior. That there's just no doubt it was fundamentally part of how they were constructed through these laws. Take, for example, Black people being prohibited from testifying against white people. Yes, we have, we have to remember that the context that preceded these laws was one where people of African descent and British descent working on the same plantation were treated the same. And in a context where free men of African descent and free British men had the same rights and privileges as a matter of law what I find is people have the hardest time holding on to that reality. Mm -hmm. And then to move on to talk about how these laws that asserted a group called white people changed society into one that we now recognize.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about that a little bit. So then when the United States came into existence, did all of this go away with the creation of the US?
1: Well, not at all. In fact. One of the things I wanted to explain a little further is that it's really problematic to refer to the white people that were invented in 1681 as a race. The language of race didn't even become common until the 20th century. It was not until the late 1700s that we see race used in a manner connected to humans which was more than 100 years after white people were invented. So what was being constructed in these laws was concepts of groups of humans with very different understandings of their their value and worth within colonial North America. Mm -hmm. Because from its invention, whiteness was assigned superiority. And that there's not a law you can look at here. In light of the context that preexisted it, where people of African descent and European descent lived the same lives, faced the same laws and opportunities. These laws, for example, the one that made it illegal for a black person to testify against a white person. like What what did a British indentured servant or a free British person learn about what it meant to be white just from that one law? Right. So the laws makes th- these laws and, and this moment make it absolutely clear that white superiority was built in to the very assertion of a group of people called white people. So the concept of a white race, however, really doesn't emerge for more than a 100 years. Okay. Yeah. So ra- the terminology, the concept of race as attached to humans, race was assigned to animals for the purpose of breeding at this time, but it's really not for more than 100 years that it becomes commonplace. In fact, if you look at the first US census, which was taken in 1790, the census doesn't refer to groups as races. Oh, really? Yeah, there is one reference to race that I have found in that period. And it's in um, Thomas Jefferson's notes on the state of Virginia, I think only one time is the word race used. And that's because he was, you know, he was a kind of a naturalist, Like the Carlos Linnaeus Uh and Lumenbach and others who were part of that natural order of being, Uh they were the primary players who helped to connect this notion of race with a human order. So taking human groups that were already understood at the time and then making them... Appear as if they are separate human races.
0: Yeah. So what did it look like then over the hundred years that, that brought us to that point where we started seeing race in the way that we're talking about it today?
1: Well, we don't know all the answers to that at all. In fact, whenever, um, graduate students are pursuing research in the area of race, I get really excited because what I, what I'd love to do is understand more about how this concept of a human grouping called white people spread right from maryland right. virginia through throughout North America. I know it went into Canada by the early nineteen hundreds i It likely went in before that, but i I studied their um census data, and it's not actually in the census questions that you find their use of that terminology. But in the mm-hmm. instructions to the census takers is where I found all of the information. So, right, so we know we know that it has that it spread. And by the time of the American Revolution, you know, we had the Declaration of Independence. And right. in 1789, the very first Congress of the United States of America met for the first time, obviously, with the task of establishing all the laws of this new country. And the naturalization law, which is the law that defines the legal process one must go through to become a citizen, if you're not born here, and naturalization law, according to our founders, determined that you must be white to naturalize a U.S. citizen. That was a requirement in law for more than 150 years. And it's a terrific example of white privilege. Right? Because yeah. poor white people, female, disabled, LGBT, if you were white, this law gave you access to citizenship.
0: Mm hmm
1: and and so even with a whole bundle of other social disadvantages it doesn't mean those didn't constitute disadvantages of course they sure. do and do but that there is something that comes with whiteness in the United States of America that you get if you are seen
0: to be white yeah when i was reading this section on naturalization i could not help but parallel where we are today there are tremendous parallels
1: right the language yeah. has changed for sure yeah but the the preferences have not. Right. We have coded terminology. I mean, today, we even as a matter of just everyday discourse, it's shifted to language of of a good school. I mean, what does that mean, a good school? Right. It's absolutely loaded with racial connotation. Mm -hmm. Um, And we all know it, right? But But it seems like things are less about race, and it's just not true. We are entrenched in a culture of white superiority, and everybody knows it except most white people.
0: Yeah, and that's the interesting thing, because for me, as I started getting more active in anti-racism work, and you've been doing this for decades, but as I was getting into it more, the whole concept of whiteness was really lost on me. I didn't understand what it meant. And so I spent a long time studying it and then to actually be able to read this book and to look historically how it was established and how it was meant to function and what these laws speak to what was going on at the time in people's minds and then how it shaped culture forward and to be able to follow it through these naturalization laws. Historically, it was fascinating to read about the Irish as well and the differences between the Mexican. Yes. Yes. Oh, my gosh.
1: Right. So it, what I love about the the history of the Irish Catholics is it makes it so clear that who is white has not been in our past anyway linked with low levels of melanin, right? Because those Irish Catholics, they counted as white for purposes of naturalization law because of right. the Protestants who had come before them. But as a matter of local law and practice, they were absolutely not seen or treated as white. Right. And so that's and I think Um, if we think about people from the Middle East who are in America today, North America, especially those who are Muslim, that Mm -hmm. they are, they're in kind of a similar boat to Mexicans who counted as white by virtue of federal law. Mexicans did after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. Because let's not forget that, that almost half of our country became part of our country because it was taken from Mexico for a small payment uh, as a result of the Mexican-American War. Mm-hmm. And that there was all these people who yesterday were Mexicans living in Mexico, and the next day were Mexicans living in the U.S., and they hadn't moved. Yeah. And, and so by virtue of federal law, they counted as white because the treaties with Spain and then the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo had ensured that. But as a matter of state and local law, they were not white. And so I think people of Middle Eastern descent are in a similar situation today where by virtue of federal law, for purpose of clicking off what we call race on forms, they click off white. But in terms of everyday treatment and access to the privileges of whiteness in the U.S., um, they are largely denied.
0: Yeah, that is an excellent parallel. One of the things that people listening uh, might be thinking or struggling with is this idea that, okay, if race is a social construct, then why do we talk about it? Can't we just ignore this now and put it behind us and move forward?
1: Oh, my God. Um, Wouldn't that be wonderful? That would be amazing.
0: Right. But, so I want to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Well, we'll just return to the, to that founding law, the naturalization law that required you be white, mm-hmm. that as a matter of founding law, white superiority was built in. It, it is built in the presumption of the superiority of white people has been built into every single institution in the United States of America since its founding mm-hmm. law, the entire system of law, education government, you name it, it's the bedrock. And so the fact of the matter is that race is an invention. It's about power. It's about dividing people, um, the, a divide and conquer strategy so that the ruling elite are protected, <laughs> you know, because let's not right. forget that those white people were first invented as a group of humanity in order to divide the 99%. That was the purpose for the invention of white people, right? We were invented to divide that 99% and created a cushion group, right? Now right. there are white laborers who will serve to protect the ruling elite who themselves are white from uh, <laughs> so all genius. of these other laborers who <laughs> are people considered not white. And, and right. what's so disturbing is to see how successful that plan not only was, but has been ever since. If you look throughout U.S. history and you see how white laborers, white workers have worked to, we have focused on divisions and issues and concerns regarding conditions and wages of labor. We're focused on largely groups of color rather than on the ruling elite, who are the ones who, of course, control the conditions and wages of labor.
0: Right. It's amazing, isn't it? It, I want to read something out of your book here. You say, being aware of the history of the invention of white people is important because that awareness helps to contest the commonly held belief that whites are a distinct group of humanity united by biology or genetics. This alone is powerful because it directs one to different questions and actions. When patterns arise that are linked to people grouped as white or not white, such as that of white people having higher rates of upward mobility, for example, the awareness moves us away from racial or essentialist explanations, for example, that white people are more successful because they're more intelligent, and begs the question, what social forces and what historical practices might help explain the pattern of higher levels of financial success among those labeled white in the past and today? And you talk about the shift in thinking. And how it's important to have this shift in thinking, because in doing so, we will start dismantling
1: that's right you know what what absolutely kills me is as I go around lecturing, and especially when I'm brought into uh universities and corporations mm-hmm. who are who have a a genuine and here's the part that just kills me, <laughs> they are having a yeah. genuine issue with whether white privilege is a something. So when you know this history, it's that's a ridiculous yes. question. It's an absolutely ridiculous question. And I have to always remind myself that I too didn't know this, right? That I right. I sort of stumbled upon the fact that white people were invented. I was I was digging through laws looking at legal restrictions on marriage, and I realized uh-huh. that that this category of humanity called white people vanished at some point. And I knew just enough social constructionist theory to be dangerous, you know, to go back and and awesome. realize, oh my God, white people were invented, um, right? And so, you know, I have to remember that I I too learned this, and that there's a very real reason we don't know it. Right, it keeps the status quo in place. And I always want to ask our listeners who who benefits from that, and those right. white people who are thinking, I do. I think that so many white people who have that as the only frame of thinking about this, that mm-hmm. we are so caught up in the perceived economic, and they are real, I shouldn't say perceived, in the economic advantages that white people have been afforded because of our whiteness. Mm-hmm. Because it's, and again, it, it doesn't matter whether we wanted it or asked for it, it's simply built in. While we can see that as a threat to that economic prowess, what is also unquestionable is the fact that our humanity, our capacity to empathize, to love, has been radically diminished and harmed because of whiteness. Yes. And that we, aren't, we are not the humans, we are not the people we are meant to be because of whiteness. And it's a tragedy for white mm. people. And, and of course, to people of color, my God, who have to live with the consequences of our lack of empathy. And I know we're, we're running out of time, so I, I guess I'd like to give a, a current, concrete example of that, um, yeah. if I may. So, yeah, absolutely. I think I think one of the clearest examples of the deficiency on the part of white people that that has resulted from whiteness is made clear when we think about the crack epidemic of the 1980s, right? So there was mm-hmm. this drug epidemic. The drug was crack. The communities that were disproportionately impacted by these addictions were African-American. And how did we respond as a people, as a nation, as local communities? What did we do? We incarcerated. We incarcerated, we incarcerated, we incarcerated. Mm-hmm. Jump, jump to now. Now we have a drug epidemic. Um, And it's an opioid epidemic. And the communities that are disproportionately impacted by this addiction are white. And look at how we are responding. Oh, yeah. We we are responding with humanity because we see white people as freaking human beings. But we white people do not have empathy. We do not see a human being when it comes to non-white people. And that is a problem with white people. It is a defectiveness with our humanity. We are not born that way. We are not born with that defect. But by the age of three or four, we have learned white superiority. We have learned thoroughly that that it is better to be white than not white. And our capacity to empathize and to
0: love is radically diminished. That is powerful. I really appreciate you coming on and taking your time and sharing your thoughts with us and just your research. Everybody who is listening, if you haven't been convinced already, you need to go out and get the book Birth of a White Nation by Dr. Jacqueline Batalora.
1: I wanted to thank you, Jen, for offering this podcast, for doing your part to help us all learn and grasp the complexities of this thing we call race. It's so important and none of it is easy.